Welcome to Game Changers, a video game industry podcast brought to you by Convoy. We're a firm that invests in companies driving the future of the gaming industry. In this podcast, we will go beyond the gaming experience and highlight founders within the gaming space whose businesses and thought leadership sit at the frontier of the industry. I'm Josh Chapman. I'm Jason Chapman. I'm Jackson Vaughn. And we're the founders of Convoy. Each month, one of us is going to bring you a candid and open conversation with leaders in this industry. Who are these game changers? What have they built? And what are they doing now? Let's dig in. Today, we're chatting with Charles Huang. Charles is the co-creator of the legendary video game franchise Guitar Hero, as well as the co-founder of Red Octane. As one of the pioneers at the intersection of the music and gaming industry, he revolutionized the way we experience and interact with music in a virtual space. In 2007 and 2008, Guitar Hero was the best-selling video game in the world and the first game in the series that is considered to be one of the most influential video games of the first decade of the 21st century. The series has sold over 25 million copies worldwide, earning over $2 billion in retail sales. Charles currently serves on the board of several startups and nonprofit organizations, teaches a course on entrepreneurship at the University of California at Berkeley, and is chair of the UC Berkeley Foundation. Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Josh, for having me. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. We'd love to start off every podcast and asking our guests, what are you playing right now? What games are you playing? I came prepared. This is going to date my age a little bit, but this is a SNES controller nice. from the Nintendo retro game system. I've I, uh, been reliving my childhood trying to beat Punch-Out. Okay. <laughs> Again. Okay. Uh, it's an old game that I, I, I can't help playing till my, my, my thumbs can't stand it anymore. <laughs> That's awesome. How many times have you beat the game? Oh, well, I used to do it regularly growing up, but now it takes me, uh, uh, I can't get through it in one session anymore. <laughs> I have to take several days and stop, let my thumbs rest. <laughs> That's awesome. Tell me about how you got into video gaming as a kid and, and early life and tell us how you got passionate about the space. Yeah, it's great. I I would say I, I may have been amongst the sort of the first generation of game uh, developers and makers who might have played games as a child. So I was born in Taiwan. My family moved to the U.S. in the late 70s. And in 77, we went to New York. And that was right around when Pong first came out. And so like this, how, again, I'm dating myself. But we bought a Pong after that, a couple of years after that, an Atari 2600. And so this is like right at the beginning of, of, of gaming as, a, as a, a kind of a kid's activity. And I was lucky enough to, to be around when that happened. And I played those games. Uh, when we moved out to California, the Apple IIe, like Apple games started becoming a thing. And I was playing Apple IIe games. And you know, it wasn't quite a gaming culture, but it was a, a, a fun thing to do as a, as a kid growing up. And that was my first real sort of experience and interest. At what point did music sort of enter the components? So obviously with Guitar Hero at the intersection of gaming and music, was music a part of your early gaming experience in any way? Well, music was a, a part of my early life. I always say like I, I was like all good Asian kids. I grew up playing the violin and the piano, <laughs> but I, I, I had like I have zero talent for music. So I, I, I never claimed to be a musician. I just say I, I learned to play those instruments. It, it was pretty obvious like two years into my violin lessons that like watching my 
friends and where they were going. And I like, they, you know, they were improving like this. And I was like, I, I was improving like this. <laughs> and so I, I, I had no talent, which I, I don't know. Some people say that's probably why we ended up making Guitar Heroes for all the people who wanted to play music, but had no talent. Yeah. And what was your early career like before Guitar Hero? Uh, you know, it, it's it's funny. My family has a business in, in sort of auto, but my dad, you know, automotive accessories, they were importing them from Taiwan. And I helped out a bit. And, and that's where I first learned about like factories and how they made things, my first early exposure. But when I uh, got out of college, my brother and I started a company. Red Octane was actually our second company. The first company, uh, we started with some other friends. Uh, it was a software company that kind of didn't go anywhere and didn't last very long. But this was the dot-com boom. And so everybody had startups. And so we, we were like, yeah, we, we'll be a... Uh, Startup entrepreneurs, and, and and we started one that failed, that that failed, and then the second was Red Octane. And then, how did you come up with the idea of Guitar Hero? We had a group of people when we started Red Octane. First of all, Red Octane we originally started as a game rental service, and by that I mean like we were shipping discs through the mail, the way that Netflix used to send DVDs through the mail. We were sending games, and and this is tells you the era, like almost we at the were same sending, time. Yes, yeah, at the same time. Wow. We lost our service within about six months after Netflix did. We were sending Sega Dreamcast, <laughs> PlayStation 2 uh, disc, and PlayStation 1. That was the era that, that we were doing this on. But if, 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 you're, uh, if you remember in those days, PlayStation 1s could be modded to play Japanese import games. And at that time, probably the most popular Japanese import games were music games, especially a game called Dance Dance Revolution. And that was our first exposure. We had a, a group of people in the office who just loved playing DDR and play all these other. Really, we were inspired by, by Bimani, the studio in Japan that created a whole bunch of games, Dance Dance Revolution, Bimania, all the sort of very, really pioneering uh, per peripheral-based music games. And we just had a group of people that loved it and really wanted to make a music game that would be appealing to US and European markets. And that was a lot of our motivation. You know, we got involved in the market for selling dance pads for DDR when that game came to the U.S. And then we made a dance game uh, and it just kind of progressed from there to where we thought, you know, if we want to make a game that might appeal, it should really be about rock and roll and metal and everything that is rock and roll and metal. And that's kind of how, how Guitar Hero 1 came about. What was that like launching Guitar Hero 1? And how did you deal with the manufacturing challenges? How did you uh, navigate who was going to make them for you and ship them over to the United States or, or to Europe or wherever you were distributing? How did you set that business up? Yeah, I would say there were there were two key things on it. First, first was on the software side, we worked with a studio, Harmonics Music Systems in Boston. Uh, they, they had experience in making music games. Music games were not that popular in the U.S., so there weren't that many people as publishers and developers that had experience. Uh, but we had known those guys uh, for a while, and so we talked about doing this project together. And so they set off on, 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 on making the game software for PlayStation 2, and then we handled all the hardware. Uh, and to your point, that the hardware was uh, really sort of an evolution. We, you know, we, we knew how to make dance pads, so we, we kind of knew how to make game controllers of a very unique, specific type. And from there, we were able to learn how to, to work with other type of uh, materials. And really, that had been the challenge for, I would say, early on in Guitar Hero was the controllers made this kind of a very analog product, 
right? And, and you know, we had to build each controller in China, gets shipped over here on a boat, right? And, 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 and you know, and, and there's a limited quantity of those. And so early on, uh, almost all of our challenges was really managing that business and sort of getting the quality right, getting the play feel right, and, and then getting the managing the, the sort of the risks of the inventory. And that was, you know, we had grown up doing that with the dance pads. And I always say, like, the software side of music games is the sexy part where everybody buys the game because of it. But the hardware is where you make or lose money. And that was the critical part that we learned over the years to do. I remember from an early conversation you and I had, you told me a few stories of the trips you would take to source the manufacturing side of this business. For everyone listening, would you mind sharing just a few anecdotes or stories of what it was like to secure that quality of manufacturing, the trips you would take? What was it like? At that time and and era, uh, you were either a software company or a hardware company. You were either EA or Activision, or you were Logitech, right? And the two didn't really mix. Some Japanese companies would do it. Mostly the ones that had made arcade games were comfortable making both, but we were comfortable making both. And so that meant a lot of time, to your point, at that time, still today, most of high volume consumer hardware, consumer electronics hardware is made in Southern China, nearby this city called Shenzhen. It's like most of the the world's sort of uh, uh, high volume electronics are built there. So it's about going there, spending a lot of time on the ground. I was fortunate, I I spoke Mandarin because at that time, that area of China was not very accessible to people who didn't speak Mandarin. And you have to go spend summer is really hot. It's very hot and humid there. And yet you have to be willing to go there in the summertime and spend time in these dirty, grimy factories and sit there and and watch uh, units roll off the line. You have to go there and see like, are they doing the right things in the packaging? How is the plastic injection molding? There's all these things, which is not at all glorious. It's not like you're sitting there designing software and being able to show it off to people. It's about spending time really, like when I say getting your hands dirty, it really is like getting your hands dirty in a factory and, and learning how to make things. And you know, over the years, people like Apple and others then came around and were doing hardware and software and told the, sort of showed the rest of the world how important and powerful that combination was. But in our early years, it was kind of, nobody was doing that. And if everybody would look at us and say, you're crazy. Like just be a hardware company or a software company. Don't try to do both. How did you deal with that feedback specifically when people said, you're crazy for trying to do both. What did that feel like when probably incredibly accomplished gaming companies like EA or Logitech on either side of this, probably executives you were starting to to get to know better is, how did you deal with that feedback of people saying you're nuts for trying to do both? <laughs> yeah, it, it, was def- it was definitely hard to convince people until probably I would say the iPod came out along with iTunes, where people began to see like how powerful it was to be able to do both. And for us, we had just kind of, that was always in our DNA. One of the best examples I thought in the development of all of our games for how being able to do both changes the, the way we approach making games. And it had to do with when we started looking at building drums for Guitar Hero, this was Guitar Hero 4. And we, we get all the software developers, the hardware developers, the, the game designers together in a room to talk about like, what's the core experience that we want to have for this drum feature. And it came down to two. One was we said we wanted people to be able to cross their hands because this feels like you're drumming. And we wanted people to be able to hit the drum pads hard or soft and the game should be able to tell the difference. And so then the hardware designers go off 
and, and figure out like, okay, if they want to cross their hands, what do we have to do with in terms of the mechanical design, in terms of hitting the pads hard or soft, what do we have to do in terms of the sensors that we're using? And the software developers go off and think in the screen, okay, like, so how do we get to show people to, to hit you know, the different levels of drums? Uh, and, and how are we going to show people to hit the, the, the drum pad hard or soft? And how are we going to uh, score those? And what kind of music do we find that shows off these types of differences? And so I would say like our approach was never, when, we, when I explain that to other game developers, their mind is kind of blown because they start with the assumption that like I have, if I have a, a game pad, I have 12 buttons and two, you know, two joysticks, or I have a keyboard and a mouse, right? And we say like, no, we can build anything you want, right? Just forget all of that. Whatever the experience is, we'll build hardware and software to fit it. And so that was always our approach. And th so that was the philosophy that we believed in. And that's how we kind of thought that we could go forward, despite everybody telling us, like, you can't be a hardware company and a software company. Walk us through the evolution on the hardware side as you went from Guitar Hero 1, 2, 3, 4. How did you decide how big the original guitar was going to be? Like, how did you decide on the sizing of that piece of hardware and what was that process like? What was the, the guesswork and what was the research behind it? it? It was funny because as you look across different parts of the business, the salespeople, when they talk to uh, retailers, would say like, yeah, make that as small as you can because they don't want that box taking up a lot of room uh, in retail. But, you know, the designers would want this thing to feel right to somebody. And then you have to guess uh, okay, like, is this game going to be mostly played by, you know, teenagers, you know, tweens, adults, right? Because then you have to adjust the size. So it was a, a, a lot of guesswork on that part. But I would say that, you know, for us, the first one was, I always think it was really something that we wanted to simplify as much as possible to just get the core experience. We didn't want to overburden it with a lot of technology uh, overburden it with like too many things for people to do. But we just wanted to get the core experience of like you're hitting a button with your left hand and you're strumming with your right hand. And as long as people could do that, we thought like that's fun and we just need to get that out. Uh, and I thought we did a we we did a pretty good job. If you, if you look at the Guitar Hero 1 guitar, it was like as plain vanilla <laughs> and as simple yeah. <laughs> a product as could be. But it really communicated. It was, you know, it, it was accessible and communicated sort of the fun of the game. And then when you went to Guitar Hero 2 and then the subsequent, walk us through the evolution of each game and how did you, you know, eventually added other instruments and how, what was that process like and how did you make those decisions? Yeah, so this this comes the, here, here comes the fun things of <laughs> hardware that you have to, so Guitar Hero 1 was strictly PlayStation 2. So that was one guitar, one platform, and it was a wired. So you, you, you took it out, you plugged it into the PlayStation 2 and like it worked immediately. For Guitar Hero 2, we were now on Xbox 360 and PlayStation 2. And then Xbox 360 required us to be wireless. Well, it wasn't required, but they they, they really wanted this thing to be wireless because it showed off their platform a lot better. So, so we agreed with Microsoft uh, and their hardware team, and we, we started to work on a wireless version of the guitar. So that one automatically complicates it now. So we were working on a wireless version of, of the Xbox 360, a wireless version of the PlayStation 2 as well. And that creates its own kind of fun little challenges. One of the things we found out about uh, the, the Xbox 360 was we were the first company to build 
a Xbox wireless controller besides Microsoft. Wow. And so they said, we'll, we'll support you. We'll try to help you figure out how to do it. Because we said, like, there's no specs for how to, you don't have APIs for third party. Th- and so, like, how are we going to do this? They said, we'll help you. And they just threw a lot of engineers at us, including we found out at, the, at one point that uh, there was only one person that wrote the firmware for the chips, the wireless chips that go into the Xbox 360 controller. And that engineer had left Microsoft. Oh, no. So they said, we're going to track this guy down for you. And he had gone home to Australia. <laughs> so like they tracked him down and, and we hired him as a contractor to help us. So there's like all these like behind the scenes, like weird things that, you, you, you know, we all these weird problems that we had to solve in order to build that, that second controller. And then by three, now we were cross-platform. We were, we were, we were at that time, it was the Nintendo Wii, the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3 and 2. Um, and so, so, so building each of those platforms was a little bit of an engineering challenge, but really it was a production challenge because while it looked to the outside world like we we're building a guitar controller, we were really building four different con- controllers. The Wii, the 360, the PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3. Wow. So we're trying to ship four hardware products at the same time, trying to manufacture four hardware products. And, and so that was really kind of the challenge of being like in, in, in the hardware business at that time. And then Guitar Hero 4 was the progression to drums, guitar, a microphone, added a lot of complexity. That year, I remember we... And what year is this? This was 2008. I think we ended up building somewhere around 27 million units of controllers for all of these. <laughs> there, you know, a drum was what you know, like if we consider a drum, a guitar, uh, uh, a microphone, and then on each of the platforms, it added up to about 27 diff- million units of hardware that we built. And so it was just an incredible manufacturing challenge. And during all those years with all of the manufacturing challenges, did you have to keep finding new suppliers and manufacturers of the hardware? Or did you find that you stuck with one or two that sort of specialized and you kind of grew up with them? What was that like on the the sourcing of manufacturing? Yeah, I hope this doesn't get too wonky on on this part. But we we wanted to make sure for each... So we would find a manufacturer for, say, the, the Xbox 360 and the one for the Wii. But because of the size of the business and the importance that it played in Activision's sort of overall business... You know, at that time we were doing with the Guitar Hero, that Guitar Hero 4, we were doing about, uh, we did about a billion five in revenues that year in terms of the entire Activision business. That was like a big part of it. So we needed to ensure that supply chain was managed correctly. And so we, we would have a lead for the Xbox 360 and a backup, and then a lead for the PlayStation 3 and a backup, and a lead for the PlayStation 2 and a backup. And so we were managing the supply chain risks that way. And so at all times, we were managing five or six different factories and trying to make sure that like the person that was the lead for the, uh, say, the Xbox 360 and the, the one that was the backup, the lead would get 80% of the volume, the backup gets 20%. But we had to make sure that those units would come out and be indistinguishable from each other. And so there was, there was like all kinds of things that we learned during that time on the manufacturing. And, and that's why I was saying earlier, like, the software is the sexy thing that gets people to buy, but the hardware is where you make or lose money. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And when did you know that you had made it? When was the moment when, you know, with Guitar Hero 1 or 2, when you realized we did it, we are now, we hit our goals, we, we, we've made it? 
you know, there was some funny things because because we had put a lot on the line to get Guitar Hero One out. We were a small company, you know. We my brother and I had maxed out our credit cards. I, I had taken a second mortgage on my house to finance the launch of Guitar Hero, and uh, I would say like almost immediately out of the gate, there were some weird signs that came through for us. So like. One of the, the funniest things was in the first week that the game came out, back then we had a, a, a an office, small office uh, in Silicon Valley, and we had this kind of like a, a, a little sign that we put out in front of our door that it was just kind of nailed to the, the front of the building. And then we came to work one day and, and somebody said, hey, our sign is gone. We're trying to figure out, well, like, what, what happened to the sign? And then somebody said, like, I think somebody stole it. <laughs> and then like, like, yeah, maybe. And then somebody said, yeah, I think we have fans now. Right? <laughs> maybe at, this was the first week of release of Guitar Hero, right? And so it's like, yeah, I think somebody came and stole our sign. And that was the first time we was like, that's weird. Like nobody had ever noticed us <laughs> for the first five years of our existence. And then literally the week that Guitar Hero 1 comes out, the sign disappears and gets, <laughs> gets stolen. Did you ever find the sign? No, I think like somebody came by at night and just like swiped it, <laughs> took it home or something. I remember other sites like Best Buy was the first retailer to, to get the, the game uh, you know, on launch day. And they had originally given us a forecast that they thought they could sell 30,000 units over Christmas. And that's, you know, Christmas is like three months for them that season. And they called us on day one and said, hey, we sold 3,000 units in the first two hours. And next week, we're going to need 80,000 units. <laughs> right. And I was talking to the buyer saying like, yeah, you don't understand. See, these guitars are made in China, right? And and they get shipped over on a boat. And next week we have 5,000 coming, right? And, and like, that's all we have. And so that instantly, like, you can see like a demand of 80,000 units and we had a supply of five that made it like the hardest game to find that Christmas. <laughs> that's amazing. How did that influence the next holiday season? Did you have to sort of front load and say, we're going to make a 500,000 units and all retailers were in for it. We definitely were a lot more aggressive. So in between that was when we got acquired by Activision. So between Guitar Hero 1, we launched in November of 2005. June of 2006, we were acquired by Activision. So we really didn't, you know, by that time, we, we were already halfway through that next year. And we were into sort of the Guitar Hero 2 season already selling like that. We hadn't shipped, but, but you know, we were making plans with retailers. So we definitely were a lot more aggressive. It helped us a bit with Guitar Hero 2 because we could we, we essentially staggered the release uh, between uh, Xbox and PlayStation. So that helped us buy a little bit of time in terms of shipping. After Guitar Hero 2, everything shipped the same day. So we, you know, we, we had to throw a lot more resources at that. But it's definitely a, the challenge of building hardware that is so seasonal that you had to build it all at once, ship it all at once. And then like three months later, the sales slowed up to a trickle because it's such a Christmas-loaded season. Let's move to the acquisition by Activision when they bought you. Walk us through the the first time you got the call or the email. What was that like? What did it feel like? And then walk us through that, that acquisition process. It seemed like you came out with a very strong holiday season, Best Buy selling out of your device of, of the hardware, and then you were bought you know, six, seven months later. Just walk us through that and what it felt like to get that call or that email. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I'll start like two months before we released the game. We were trying to raise $3 million to fund the inventory of, of the game, right? So we had to buy inventory. And $3 million, you know, we, we had done uh, the year before $9 million in revenues. 
And we had, we were profitable at the time. We had netted almost three million off of nine million in revenue. So it wasn't like didn't seem like us to be a huge risk, but we couldn't raise a penny. <laughs> and, and mostly because the VCs, the kind of traditional Silicon Valley VCs, just didn't want to invest in a game studio, right? It's too in, in their eyes too risky. So so we went from not being able to get any money uh, in September. We launched the game in November. And it was just like whatever money we could charge on our credit cards that we could borrow by taking out bank loans. That's how we, how much inventory we bought. And as I was saying, the sales out everywhere. Uh, and this is the November. So the December sales data comes out in January. And as it turns out, Guitar Hero was the second best-selling game of that Christmas season. And the inside story, the, the rest of the industry insiders all knew was if we had any inventory, we would have been the number one selling game. Right? And we didn't have any inventory because we were like borrowing money from our credit cards and things to buy. So, so we, we bought whatever we could and we sold it all. But everybody said, wow, that game would have been the best-selling game of the Christmas season if they just had any inventory. So as soon as that data came out, we were getting offers from private equity firms to invest $30 million in us. And so like I told my brother, wow, you know, four months ago, nobody would invest $3 million. Now people want to invest thirty. And literally the, the, the day that we got our first term sheet, Activision called. And just invited us to like, hey, come in, come in. We'd like to talk to you. And then we went down to LA. They kind of basically said, we're interested in buying the company if you're interested in selling. And, you know, we started a kind of a long, lengthy negotiation and due, due diligence. We made the decision to sell. Uh, at the time, we had a board member. Uh, his name is Kelly Sumner. He was the CEO of Take-Two Interactive from about Grand Theft Auto 3 till about uh, uh, Grand Theft Auto Liberty City Stories, so about five. And uh, he was on our board, and he told my brother and I at the time, he said, look, you guys uh, own the majority of the company. You guys have no money. And if somebody offers you life-changing money, you should probably take it. <laughs> and literally, it was about as simple as a decision as that. Once he told us that, we thought about it. Uh, it you know, and Activision, uh, uh, eventually, we closed the deal in uh, early June uh, in time to announce it at E3 in uh, 2006. Amazing. That must have been quite the day, getting a term sheet from a private equity firm and then also a call from Activision. You know, with your conversations with your board member, Kelly, how did you decide to go the full acquisition route versus the take in $30 million and, and keep keep going and then push for a larger acquisition a year or two later? There were a couple of interesting sort of minutia that drove part of that decision. One was on the business side, Guitar Hero early on, we knew it was a great game and it was selling well, but because the sales were always capped by the hardware units that we were building, we knew that demand was above supply, but we didn't know how much. We had no idea, like, could Guitar Hero sell 500,000 units? Could it sell a million? Could it sell 5 million? Like, nobody knew because we couldn't build enough units. So that was a bit of a risk. Uh, to us looking at that time at the Guitar Hero business. I tell this joke uh, on the, that side of it was, uh, you know, Michael Pachter, the, the analyst at Webbush, we saw him a couple of years later at Tokyo Game Show, and I was just chatting with him. And he said, man, when you guys showed me Guitar Hero 1, I thought, that's a cute little game. I had no idea it would become this big, you know, juggernaut. And he said, clearly you guys didn't either, or else you wouldn't have sold the company, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and, and so, you know, like there was a little bit at that time, uh, like I say, it was difficult to tell, like it was going to be a juggernaut. It was going to be the second billion dollar video game in the world, right? World of Warcraft was the first, we were the second. I think a year after we did it, Call of Duty Modern Warfare was the third. So there was like, we didn't have any idea it could be a billion dollars. But there was a, a subtle thing uh, that maybe for the entrepreneurs out there, they, they might appreciate it, was at that time, there wasn't a real practice of letting entrepreneurs sell part of their shares so that they could take some money off the table. That was like at the time, the, the, the philosophy was if you tried to do that, it showed you had no confidence in the business. Interesting. And so that was not an option for us to like, hey, maybe we sell a little bit of our shares, take in the investment and keep going. It was kind of like you either left it all on the table <laughs> or you took it all off the table, all at, you know, like at once. I would say that like today it's a little bit more entrepreneur friendly in that sense. And it helps people to be able to keep going. But at that time, that was really not an option for us. Super interesting. What was that integration process like with Activision sort of the 18 months after, after the June acquisition? Oh, so it was funny. The deal is officially closed on June 6th. That's like... You have to go after the, the it's announced, you have to get an official approval, like the state of California and others like send you a stamp document, like, okay, your deal is actually closed. <laughs> and and so that was June 6th. <laughs> June 6th, 2006. We actually joked that was 666. That was the, <laughs> <laughs> the date that the deal, the stamp from the California on it had 666 on it. So the deal closes. And at the end of June is the close of the quarter. So we were like 20, what is, what is, what is, 24 days on the close of the quarter. So the following Monday, the controller of Activision, this guy, uh, Steve Webb, flies into our office and he comes with two big binders. And he goes, guys, this is Sarbanes-Oxley. And we've got 24 days to make sure you guys are fully compliant with Sarbanes-Oxley. Because, <laughs> you know, we were a startup and we, had, we, like, we didn't have to do any of that stuff. And so <laughs> the first question he's asked, so... So like we, we run on Oracle Financials. What system are you guys running on? We said, uh, we're running on QuickBooks. <laughs> and, he was like, and he was like, oh, this is going to take me some time then. And so he literally spent the next couple, you know, like two or three weeks sitting in our offices, helping us get through that initial part of integration. <laughs> and that was my, like, I always joke, that's my introduction to being part of a public company was <laughs> two big binders of Sarbanes-Oxley. Like, okay, we need to look at all your contracts, all your, all your accounting. And that was kind of, the, 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 like we didn't have time to ramp up to that. We had t 24 days, they have to report earnings and we have to be fully compliant. And that was my kind of my integration experience. <laughs> wow, that's, a, that's an intense start for sure. Looking at what Guitar Hero accomplished as a game and how it changed the gaming industry with the new hardware and the new style of play and the living room style of play that I and many, many other people have enjoyed. And then you had competitors emerge like Rock Band and others. What do you think was the reason why Guitar Hero and this entire genre that you created really exploded? What was the, the pulse that it hit that you think is why it became such an amazing success? It's an interesting question. You know, I think when, when we first started, I remember it was, in fact, Activision's marketing team, after they acquired us, told us, before you came along, the music rhythm category just music gaming, they said, was like probably in terms of genres in, in gaming was maybe like the 14th or 15th biggest category. It was like nothing. Nobody had ever paid any attention to it. And by the time we were a billion dollar franchise and Rock Band was really going, it made up probably uh, a little bit over 10% of all game sales. Wow. 
And part of it, I always thought was like, music games have this really broad appeal. To hardcore gamers, there's a there's a sense of like it's easy to pick up but very hard to master. You could look at somebody playing a game like Guitar Hero and tell how good they are very quickly. And so like that challenge of it appealed to some of the, the hardcore gamers. But it had a couple of other uh, things that I thought like one is we probably had the highest percentage of females playing. You know, you have to remember this was all consoles before mobile and that. And if you looked around the entire industry, everybody always said, like, I think you have the most highest percentage of female playing your game versus like obviously Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto or any of those games. So I think that was a, a huge part of the appeal. It also brought in a lot of uh, uh, first time gamers. Best Buy was the one who gave us this stat. They said that we had, this was for Guitar Hero, uh, in the Guitar Hero 1 and 2 era, we had about, in terms of Best Buy, so they analyzed receipts, they call it a ticket. And what did people buy in the same ticket? And they said when they bought Guitar Hero 1, almost 9% of people also bought a console, which in their eyes meant that these people didn't own a console. They were buying this console to play Guitar Hero 1 with. And they said they looked at the other games and they said no other game had an attachment rate even at half a percent. And we were up at like almost 9%, which just said like we pulled in a lot of new gamers people who had never considered playing console games, people who were probably like, like you were talking about, we had a lot of people who were like, we're going to throw a party and we need to entertain people. So let's go buy Guitar Hero and buy a console and, and that kind of thing. And, and so like, I thought we were able to pull, you know, different people, uh, women, you know, first time gamers into the market. That's amazing. That's amazing. Looking back on the entire entrepreneurial journey, is there anything you would do differently and any advice you have for gaming founders today? I'll start with the second one, the gaming entrepreneurs. I think like a lot of things in tech, I always think that like um, you have to be at least in the top three of the industry. So like if you're not one of the top three, maybe even top two in music games or first person shooters or racing games, then I think you're just waiting to be killed off by the, the people that are the number one or the two. And that's just kind of the nature of gaming. And so I think like if you can't be in the top three, then it's very difficult for you to survive long-term and you just got to figure out what makes you top three. Our advantage was we knew how to do hardware and software. If we were just software, we wouldn't have even been in the top 20 in the industry. And if we we're doing just hardware, we would not have been in the top probably five in the industry. But the combination of those, like no one else was even trying. So that just made us easily number one because no one else was even trying. And it allowed us to create something that other people wouldn't even attempt. So like you have to figure out a way to put yourself in a position where you can create something that's at least top three, if not top two in the industry, I, I feel like. And then as far as things that we would have done differently, people always ask if I regret selling <laughs> the company. On a personal level, I thought like, no, you know, it was, it was fantastic. Activision was an incredible learning experience. They really took the franchise to much greater heights. Like, I don't know if we could have made it a billion dollar a year franchise. You know, we might've been able to do, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe 50%, but they had a, a huge infrastructure and I learned a lot from, from, from those people. And then I think also, you know, in terms of uh, when people say, do I regret it? I, I always think, you know, financially, it, it ended up working out in the end. We sold the company for $150 million, but we got most of it in stock and Activision gave us that stock at $6.50 roughly. Right. And, and, and Microsoft, who knows if this deal will ever go through, is buying it at $94 or 95 And so it was an incredible run that we were part of. 
So I don't think there was any real regrets in terms of the outcome. That's great. And what's next for you? What are you working on today? What are you spending a lot of your time on these days? What gets you excited on a day-to-day? Well, I'm mostly retired from the day-to-day, but I do work with some studios either on the board as investors or what that are doing some very cool things. There's a, a studio uh, uh, called Steel Wool that makes the, the Five Nights at Freddy's games, the new ones that are in VR, some of these, and, and, and that's a lot of fun, uh, exciting. Also, a studio in New York called Velen Studios. They built Mario Kart Live, the augmented reality version of Mario Kart, uh, together with Nintendo. I feel like these are kinds of things that like push the limits of gaming a little bit. I like. I, it was fun running a huge uh, franchise that was doing a billion a year, but I, I kind of like working on things that are kind of pushing the limits. Well, that's exactly what you did, right? You combined two things together that no one else was doing. So, yeah, it makes total sense that you'd get really excited about these other new founders that are pushing the limits on a genre or a type of gameplay. I mean, that's that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, there was a, a fun time where we we're reflecting back, and this was probably around the time of Guitar Hero f- 3 or 4, where it was already, you know, like a billion-dollar franchise. And I said, you know, when we were doing Guitar Hero 1, it was a tiny little franchise, but everybody was talking about it, how, how, how fresh and innovative it was. And by the time we get to three or four, it's a huge business. We're more, we're bigger than ever, but I felt like we're not as relevant because we're not pushing the frontiers, right? We're just big. <laughs> and, and, and I always thought like, there's a difference between being big and being relevant. And uh, there's a lot of fun to like making things that people pay attention to. <laughs> Talking about the broader gaming industry today, from when you got involved in the gaming industry to now, what are the biggest changes? And then my follow-up question will be about the future, but let's talk about what's changed the most that you pay attention to in the gaming industry today. It's a fascinating question that you ask and to sort of, you know, it started for me to realize, well, you know, we came squarely from the console world and that was born of a kind of games that were made for discs, you know, or, or possibly downloads on PC, but they were a specific it was a specific business model. You bought the entire game and therefore a specific game design. It's like everything you needed for the game shipped with it and you played it played it through. I remember uh, seeing like the first free-to-play games show up. And at that time, they were showing up in Korea. Uh, there's a, a, one of my best friends in the Korean game industry, a guy named Yong Jae-min, who was the CMO. He, he eventually was CMO at Nexon, but he had worked on like one of the first free-to-play games uh, with microtransactions, maybe the first in the world at that time in Korea. And that really, over the years, it was shocking to me how much that changed both the industry as well as the design of games. Right now, now it's what drives all mobile, a good chunk of PCs was this idea that, you know, like, and, and how you design a, a free-to-play mobile game is entirely different than how you would design a console game. And the business model, you know, that's driven by the business model of getting people to spend these microtransactions. Free-to-play also pulled in an entire region of the world, Asia, to where now they were both consumers of games as well as really high quality game makers. That evolution I thought was fascinating to go from an entirely sort of disc or download game business model plus game design to now free to play gaming as a service, microtransactions uh, has been an enormous change in in the game industry. And looking ahead, what do you get most excited about? What do you think is coming that's gonna change the industry in? similar 
scales of magnitude that you just mentioned around the emergence of different business models and free-to-play and mobile and all of those changes that have happened to the gaming industry over the last decade and a half, 20 years, that what what are you seeing going ahead that's probably overhyped? And what are you seeing looking ahead that you think is, for better words, underhyped or really going to change the industry? Yeah, I think because of that experience, I tend to look at, a lot of people will look at platforms, right? You know, whatever, uh, VR, AR, that, those kind of platforms. But I always pay attention to also business models and how that affects. And so one of the, the more interesting ones is I think this idea of subscriptions that has been introduced by Apple with Apple Arcade and Microsoft with, you know, through, through their subscription service is really sort of potentially another fundamental game changer in the, in the, in the sense that like, What's the games that are required to drive those will be a different design than what's worked on disc and then what's worked in free to play. And it'll be interesting to see that evolve. These are companies that like, they're the only two companies that are worth $2 trillion, right? <laughs> and they're both interested in building subscription gaming services. <laughs> and I always think like, if the two biggest companies in the world are interested in building subscription gaming services, that should probably move the market a little bit and, and drive it in, in a different direction. So I think there's some interesting things in that. I also think on a maybe more near-term basis will be like, if they start pushing, they will rain money down on the industry the way that Netflix did in Hollywood, <laughs> right? Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV. And I think for developers, like I couldn't be happier. Like today, if you, if, you, know, if you had wanted to start a game studio, there's probably more opportunities and possibly more money. You don't have to just rely on Activision EA and take two money. There's like in China, there's Tencent, NetEase, the C in, in, in you know Southeast Asia. There's all the Korean studios. There's now Microsoft, Apple. So so I feel like you know as a games studio entrepreneur, that now is a, a, an amazing time to be a creator in that industry. It's amazing. Well, Charles, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of these incredible insights. Congratulations on everything you've built. You truly have changed the industry forever with Guitar Hero and everything else that you're working on. And then the founders that you're pouring into, I'm sure, are absolutely thrilled to have you in their corner. So thank you for such an incredible episode today. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so much for those kind words. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Game Changers podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Charles Huang, the founder of Guitar Hero. It was fascinating to hear Charles' perspective on how the iconic Guitar Hero series was created, launched, and acquired by Activision. Also, the complexities of hardware manufacturing challenges that were tied to the history of the Guitar Hero that many may not know about. As well as lastly, analyzing why Guitar Hero series became such a legendary franchise that redefined the music gaming genre. If you like what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you also like reading up on deep dives on the gaming industry, sign up for our weekly newsletter at convoy.vc. Have a great week, everyone.